0: Good morning, everyone. I'm Tom Gilligan, director of the Hoover Institution. Welcome to today's Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution at Stanford University has been dedicated to collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support the pursuit of freedom and improve the human condition. The dissemination of our work has had a direct impact on the creation and execution of important public policy initiatives in the United States and around the world. As we are confronted with the challenges of the worldwide pandemic, innovative ideas that lead to actionable strategies are vital. During this series, you will hear from some of our nation's top scholars who will provide thoughtful and informed analysis on COVID-19 now and as we begin to move forward. As a reminder, we'll be taking questions and encourage you to submit yours at the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from Josh Rao and it's entitled COVID-19 and the Government Response. Josh is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of finance at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He formerly served at the White House where he was principal chief economist on the President's Council of Economic Advisors. He's also taught at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business and the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Tom. Great to be here. Great, right, well, let's start with the obvious question. Our, our economy appears to be in a bit of a hole right now. Could you kind of describe how big a hole it is?
1: This is a massive hole. Um, forecasters are projecting a 11% year-on-year decline in second quarter GDP. 22 million people have filed for unemployment insurance claims in the last four weeks. And there are many industries that are currently completely on hold and uh, across the United States are essentially operating at um, extremely reduced capacity. So this is, a, this is something that is essentially unprecedented in, in the history of, of, of economic data, in particular how quickly um, this, uh, this crisis has, has set in. Uh, to put the unemployment number in some perspective, um, if you look at rolling 52 week unemployment claims, so you add up the unemployment claims, the new claims over the past year, um, because we had very, very few uh, the that uh, in before this crisis, that number currently would be not much higher than the than the twenty two million that I mentioned. Um, during the Great Recession, over a period of years, the new claims got up to over thirty million, but it took it took a couple of years for that to happen. So the, the swiftness with which this has happened, um, and the and the depth of this is almost unprecedented.
0: Outstanding. So, what uh, what economic challenges should the federal government be addressing, and what kind of principles or, or uh, a themes should guide the actions
1: of the government? Well, I'm going to be speaking largely today about uh, the part of government policy that is fiscal policy, meaning the government spending and tax policy uh, response that that, that piece of, of of policy, and in particular the attempts to mitigate economic damage in the crisis and I'm going to largely take the health policy decisions of policymakers as given. Um, and by that I mean specifically the decisions by by governors to impose very aggressive stay-at-home orders. And I'm going to generally be speaking about given that, given that decision, how should we assess the government's economic policy response? But before I go there, I, I do want to say that there's one piece of government policy that I think we do need to acknowledge, and we need to acknowledge the impact that it has on the economy and that that is the lockdowns themselves that the lockdowns themselves are carrying risks and consequences that that no economic policy can fix now uh, the lockdowns themselves are not by themselves the only thing that is going on and how do we know that if we look at things like reservations at restaurants from the website open table or we look at data on airline bookings from the airline industry we see that even before the severe lockdowns, and actually even before President Trump declared a national emergency on March 13th, there had already been a very, very substantial drop-off in those activities as individuals responded, looked at the situation, assessed their own risks, assessed what was going on and responded accordingly. So even before March 13th, open table bookings in the US were already down by 48% and uh, airline traffic was already down by by 30%. And then if you fast forward 10 days to when California did its first lockdown, that did the first major lockdown or 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 stay-at-home order in the in the US, um, by that point already, you know, restaurant reservations are already completely dried up and airline traffic was also already down to down to all, to to just you know, 10% of what it had been before. So um, so it's not only the government's policy response that's causing the economic disruption. But it, it is true that the government's policy response is, is contributing to it. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know b- before kind of going on to the, to the fiscal policy piece of it, I think it's, it's important to note that the governments have largely ignored the ability of individuals to take responsibility for assessing their own degree of risk uh, to the virus and to make decisions accordingly. Um, whether those would have been completely sufficient or not, I, you know, maybe, maybe not. But we've kind of ignored the idea that that's going on. We don't seem to be placing much weight on the cost of what we've done to all of our elementary, secondary, and college and university students by putting them in isolation. And despite the very best efforts of educators to move material online, we've disrupted their education and social development. Um, And there are a number of other ways in which the government policy response is actually contributing to the economic situation. Um, So I think that's something we need to keep in mind in terms of what is it that the government is responding to. Now, given that, you asked me uh, you know, what, what principles the government should follow, what are the issues that they need to address, uh, and I think uh, there, are, there are four of them that I'd like to talk about. And, and one thing I'd like to say is that despite there being lots of disagreement among economists about many matters, uh, one thing that has struck me in conversations and internal seminars is that when we start talking about the, the goals of economic damage mitigation, In my experience, there's there's actually a lot of agreement among economists about the four things that I'm going to uh, to put forward. And of course, it's not universal, and some economists want more expansive government policies than others in terms of the economic damage mitigation. But there are four kind of positive points that I've found that achieve generally very strong resonance. Uh, Again, holding the health policy decisions as fixed. This is now about economic damage mitigation. Um, the first is that there is a role that the government plays in ensuring that individuals and households can still meet their basic needs during this crisis. There's clearly a role for government to provide some kind of social insurance or some kind of welfare, and, and that needs to be considered in this circumstance as well. The second is limiting inefficient job separation. So there's clearly a great concern that if an individual Fired from their job, and they they go on on unemployment. Uh, even if they're being fully compensated uh, for the financial cost of their having been uh, been laid off for the time being, there is a question of what happens when the recovery begins again. Will they be able to you know simply go back to their job, or have we you know will the labor market uh, be characterized by an inefficient amount of 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 job separation? So I think policymakers. Want to think about and have been thinking about this problem of how do we limit inefficient firings of of, of individuals and inefficient separations of workers uh, and, and 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 firms because we believe that there will be you know an end to this crisis at some point and we want the economy to return as much to normal as it can and if there have been a lot of really inefficient job separations it may be hard to get to get back to that at the same time I think we don't want to limit the efficient reallocation of of, of jobs. Uh, an example I like to give there is: it's clear that Uber drivers, for example, are not very much in demand right now, but DoorDash drivers are. So, whatever policy we put in place, we wouldn't want to uh, we wouldn't want to limit the the, the reallocation uh, from Uber to DoorDash if that's a margin on which um, private economy workers can can substitute themselves. Uh, third principle is the idea that we should be very very cautious to try to limit uh the bankruptcies and financial distress of small and medium-sized enterprises for small and medium-sized enterprises the the potential long-term cost of not being able to service your debt or meet your debt obligations can be very high because it may just be that the the business is liquidated and 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 goes away for larger firms that's not so much the case but i think a key principle is limiting the bankruptcies and financial distress of small and medium-sized enterprises uh, that can't necessarily just restructure their debts and continue to operate, but that really face a risk of being totally shut down due to bankruptcy. And, and the fourth is to prevent the collapse of the financial system. And I, I think especially a few weeks ago with some of the initial Federal Reserve policies that were put in place, that was the, the goal. So I think, I think those are the, the four main things we need to think about, ensuring that individuals and households can still meet basic needs, limiting inefficient job separation, limiting the bankruptcies with small and medium-sized enterprises, and preventing the collapse of the financial system
0: that's great josh what's your view of how the federal government is doing what are they doing right what are they doing wrong how, how would you assess the cares act
1: well i i think the government policy response I, I think it's i think it's a mix and um before i go and sort of say how i think the government's been doing on those four uh positive uh goals that i outlined i i want to talk a little bit about what some of the dangers are and what. What some of the principles are that I think uh, I hear a lot of economists talking about, what the government, uh, what the government should not do, and uh, one sense that I I got from some policymakers uh, was the idea that you know because government is imposing a certain set of health policy responses, such as stay-at-home orders or shelter-in-place orders, and because those are causing economic damages, there was an attempt by the by some parts of this government policy to seek to compensate essentially any and all parties impacted by the reduction in economic activity, with the idea being that to some extent the government imposed this, therefore the government needs to try to make people whole. That is not the right, that's not the right principle, and it's particularly problematic when you think back to my point that even had the government not implemented strict shelter-in-place, stay-at-home orders, there would have been a large economic decline as a result of the virus, just due to people's own individual responses. And surely it's not the government's role to make whole every individual in business in a way that restores their financial situation to what it was before the virus hit. And if you think it is, then I think I would ask where you think the line should be drawn. You know, Should, should any unforeseen shock or anything that happens for which we didn't initially have a strong insurance market you know, should, should, should the government step in and try to make everybody whole who is affected by that? I, I, I would say those things should not be government responsibilities, but to some extent, the private economy needs to needs to bear those costs. Um, and so re- related to that, I think uh, there is a, uh, a second point, which is the question of who should, you know, who should bear losses uh, when, when uh, something like this happens. And I, and I spoke before about some areas where I think government support would be warranted, but, but one place where the government really should simply let the market work is in the world of investments. I mean, yes, one needs to worry about avoiding the collapse of the financial system, I pointed that out, but surely people or businesses that voluntarily bought stock or bonds in companies in hopes of achieving higher returns on their money should privately bear those costs when the economy as a whole or those businesses in particular uh, experience negative shocks. These are, after all, the risks that that investors take when they seek higher returns by by buying stocks or buying high yield bonds or 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 buying buying securities where they're hoping to achieve a higher return. The the capitalist market system is one in which investors bear losses uh, for these shocks, and in return for agreeing that they will bear those losses, they get they get the upside when things go well, uh, and so. Particularly if the federal government takes actions in the name of of helping big companies, it's really helping the investors in the stocks and bonds of those companies. You know, those investors are typically deep-pocketed individuals and institutions, and the money that is committed today to assist those companies is going to have to be financed out of you know government borrowing. going to have to at some point be repaid by by taxpayers, and it's not clear why we should bail out investors beyond the point uh where we're sure that we shored up the financial system so having made those comments i will now uh you know say a few words about the cares act and how i would uh how i would uh, would uh would grade some of the pieces of it um cares act was 2.2 trillion total dollars in in spending and uh one of the pieces of the of the cares act that i think i uh, was the most targeted towards the goals that i mentioned is in fact the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP that I'm sure many of you have read about, uh, the $349 billion in loans to small businesses that are uh, forgivable if the, if the businesses spend them um, on uh, on payroll and rent and a, and a few other things. Now the program is not perfect and I think maybe the, the coverage of the program has been one that's highlighted more of the problems uh, with it than some of the successes of it. But what I think is is positive about the, the Paycheck Protection Program is that it is at least targeted towards the goal of, towards two of the goals that I mentioned, limiting SME bankruptcies, limiting the bankruptcies of small and medium-sized enterprises, and limiting inefficient job separations, so limiting the, the, the firing of, of, of workers who lose their job and not be able to find a new one when the economy starts to uh, have potential again. Um, They've run through that money very quickly. Uh, uh, the Senate majority is asking for $250 billion more for that Paycheck Protection Program. There have clearly been problems with problems with the program. It seems like some companies that don't need it have gotten it. Uh, there's no differentiation among companies that are still able to operate at 100% capacity because maybe you're a, a grocery store uh, versus one that is you know, totally uh, you know, shut down because you're a bed and breakfast. Those things need to be, need to be fixed up uh, when the money is renewed, but I think that the underlying goals uh, of the Paycheck Protection Program are, uh, are well targeted towards, um, towards what, I, what I outlined. Um, on the other end, on the sort of uh, bailing out of investors end, uh, I would have less praise for uh, the direct expenditures that are going to specific industries, direct and particularly direct aid to large corporations that's in the cares act um so uh one area that i've uh, written a piece about is is airlines uh there is some 60 billion dollars of direct aid uh to airlines about half of it is to cover wages and the other half are are, are loans uh and i think this is just even though we can say that it's to cover wages This is a very inefficient way to prop up an industry and certainly a very inefficient way to to address the potential employment uh, question for the the workers. And it's, it's inefficient because you think about the airlines, you know, the three major airlines, Delta, American, United Airlines, all of those airlines did chapter 11 bankruptcy filings in the last 20 years. All of them have spent, and in fact, during the time that one does such a filing, if you're a large company, you spend years, years in bankruptcy. If you flew on a plane on United Airlines between 2002 and 2006, you flew on a flight that was operated by a, a carrier that was in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And so, um, it just it, it, it's it's a bit puzzling to uh, ask the question: Why should we bail out the shareholders and creditors uh, uh, of these airlines who who willingly took uh, took risk uh, in the name of maybe, you know, uh, uh, name of doing, of doing other things. If we're worried about job losses, there are ways that we can address job losses on a more macroeconomic way. Hey Josh,
0: Josh yeah. uh, you think differently about SMEs versus investors in big companies. Tell us what the difference is in your mind. Why, why should we not be able to bail out large corporations, but bail out small firms?
1: So uh, this goes back to a principle of corporate finance that uh, asks the question: You know, for a given company, what what is the cost of financial distress? What is the how bad is it for the company's ability to continue to operate if it can't meet an interest payment, or it, you know, it it, it can't uh, uh, get the bank to roll over its its debt? And uh, that's called the cost of financial distress. And the cost of financial distress for large corporations uh, is generally thought to be on the modest side, and the reason is, and of course it depends on the the circumstance, but the reason is that those corporations have access to this chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, proceeding. And what usually happens in a chapter 11 bankruptcy is that the firm is able to continue to operate because they're able to get additional loans from usually the same people who were loaning the money before, the senior, senior creditors, uh, called veteran possession financing. And that allows the companies. so in the United Airlines example, allows the company to continue to operate during the time that it's, uh, that it's in uh, in Chapter 11. And, and then it, it is able to, to restructure its, its finances and emerge as a continuing ongoing concern. For an SME, it's, it's much harder to get that kind of finance. And usually if an SME can't make an interest payment or can't service its debts, the creditors are going to say, we're going to shut down the firm and so for that reason the cost of financial distress are much larger for smes uh than they are for large corporations right. and i think that uh is uh, an important uh consideration in thinking about what types of firms should we be providing aid to during this crisis
0: great thanks josh anything else in the cares act you want to talk about
1: uh yeah so i gave an example of sort of what i think is the good or at least the the, the mostly good which is the, the ppp I, I gave an example of what i think is the bad which is the direct aid and, um, and, I, and I, I think another uh, area that I think that I would say is sort of mixed but, but, but also not that good is um, the way that the, the, the sort of direct individual support um, was, was structured. So, um, you know, we have an unemployment insurance system uh, in this country and it's an unemployment insurance system that uh, uh, has automatic provisions that, you know, that, that, that kick in uh, when, when there are crises. And um, we expanded the unemployment system uh, through the federal pandemic unemployment compensation uh, in a way that I think really challenges the incentives that individuals will have uh, to get back to work or to reallocate their employment opportunities towards more productive uses. And, and that, that piece of legislation was this additional $600 per week that employees uh, can get on unemployment insurance uh right now and uh that's 600 per week is it's it's unconditional on the number of hours that you choose to work so even a part-time employee is able to get that and uh it turns out that some 64 percent of all employees out there will actually are able to to, to bring bring in a larger paycheck if they avail themselves of the regular unemployment insurance plus this additional 600 per week, than if they continued in their job, and so while I understand the desire to want to uh, want to assist people who are uh, who are laid off, um, this raises some questions as to whether it doesn't a increase the number of layoffs that are occurring. So maybe working cross purposes with the desire to avoid inefficient separation, and then it also really hurts the incentives uh, 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 of employees. When we start thinking about getting back to work, um, so I think that's a uh, one of the one of the issues that 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 that, is, that I see with the individual payments. The other is the checks. You know, I think the checks are are fairly poorly targeted. These are the twelve hundred dollars per individual that around ninety four percent of taxpayers will qualify for. Um, you know, some people need those, some people don't, uh, and uh, the logic behind sending them is different from in a sort of typical uh recession in a typical recession um the the classic argument you hear is if we give people checks they'll spend it and there's a multiplier associated with that i'm personally not convinced that multiplier is much different from one but it's an intellectually coherent argument to try to argue that there's a stimulus associated with that Uh, and in this case we're telling people to stay home so they're not going to spend the money it's not to get the economy going it's to meet basic needs and if we want to help people meet meet basic needs and we care at all about trying to spend money in an efficient fashion, then we should be doing so in a much more targeted fashion.
0: Interesting. Um, I, this is this was the CARES Act was phase four, I guess, of the bailout or the stimulus. Phase three. Yeah. Phase three.
1: And, phase and, four and, is what might be coming.
0: Okay. Well, phase, I had it wrong. In phase four, have uh, been talk about. Funding for state and local governments in Phase Four, I believe, and you're an expert on the financing of state and local governments. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what's proposed and whether that would be a good idea or not?
1: Sure. And the proposal is it's not only Phase Four; it's sort of what they're calling Phase Three and a Half. Yeah. Uh, which Phase Three and a Half is, as I mentioned, the Senate Majority uh, would like to re-up the the pay, the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, by 250 billion, and as part of the Uh, political bargaining over that one of the requests has been for a big increase in the help that's going to state and local governments um first point worth making is that already the federal government in its policy response has done very substantial um payments to to state and local governments Um, if you look at the if you look at the cares act uh there's some 340 billion in the cares act that is to state and local governments uh including uh, a lot of direct aid Uh, aid to local educational agencies, uh, 25 billion for mass transit. So there's there's a lot of money already that's flowed to state and local governments. And and the Federal Reserve uh, has also in an unprecedented way actually begun lending money to municipalities or buying the the bonds, buying municipal bonds, buying the bonds of state and local governments um, through a couple of the facilities they set up. So essentially what they're doing is you know, they're, they're, they're printing money to directly buy municipal bonds, which is actually something that I've predicted for a while uh, would would eventually happen. Um, and uh, this seems to be the moment where it started to happen. So we're already intervening with state and local governments in unprecedented ways. And now there's a request both for, uh, in order to, to bargain for this, uh, against this $250 billion increase in the PPP, there's a request for very substantial additional payments to state and local governments, And there's also a direct request on the table by the state of Illinois for $40 billion um, to help them right now, um, $10 billion of which would go to to, uh, shore up or at least help them make contributions to their unfunded pension obligations. So it would be a bailout of those. And I I think the trouble with a lot of this is that, um, you know, uh, while while there's there's an understandable desire to want to make sure that state and local governments can uh, serve the essential health functions that they play to make sure that they're able to uh, to uh, provide the public medical care at the current moment that they that they have. A lot of this ask is being done under the pretext of COVID nineteen, but is actually an ask for a bailout of very bad financial decisions that they've made in the past. Um, Illinois, you know, they're asking for for forty billion by my calculations, they've run up over $320 billion of unfunded pension obligations. That's even before uh, COVID-19 hit and the market disruption happened. So it's, it's probably much larger now. Uh, and uh, this is just opening the door for uh, states to say, we didn't manage our finances well in the past and now we want help. Uh, and uh, the idea that that help would be granted without attaching some strings, uh i think is very problematic you know i could imagine the federal government saying we'll we'll you know provide some resources but you know we want to see reforms of these programs that are running up really large liabilities or another reform that i would very i very much would have liked to have seen uh would be through the ui program you know the unemployment insurance the department of labor provides guidelines to states that the states need to uh, hold at the Treasury an amount in their unemployment insurance trust funds that is equal to essentially one really bad, one great recession level a year of unemployment benefits. So states should have been prepared for to be able to pay the unemployment insurance for this this even this event. They should have been prepared for this. Um, but they weren't because there was no there was no teeth attached to that to that request. And so as a result, you know, only about half the states actually complied; the other half didn't. California, New York, being among some of the, the, the greatest defenders, and they say we don't have any money now. Uh, well, we can give them aid now. We can expand unemployment insurance now to some extent. We can expand the federal piece of that. But how about as part of that, saying in the future though you're going to have to reform, you're going to have to have to have to fix this because we're not going to be there every single time there's a shock. Um, so, uh, so I think the, re- the, the request for, for state and local government aid with no strings attached, is just really a request for a bailout. And it, it, it also bails out the municipal bond holders, going back to the investor bailout piece, uh, you know, municipal bonds yield more, have traditionally yielded more than, uh, than, than other bonds. That's because they are tax exempt and they are, they are, they are risky. And, uh, if investors took those risks, they should have to bear some of the costs.
0: Uh, I want to remind everybody, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution Virtual Policy Briefing with Josh Rao. We're talking about physical impacts of COVID-19. Josh, uh, Katie asked the following question that kind of relates to your last answer. She says, it's my understanding that the provisions and the unemployment benefits that have been adjusted to reflect the economic uncertainty of this pandemic will return to pre-pandemic benefits once this is over. Could you expand on why incentives would not be there to return to work once it is safe to do so?
1: Well, the, the extended eligibility for benefits uh, uh, has gone up to, up to 39 weeks. And uh, I think that's a pretty long time. And the, the, uh, one of the things that we tend to worry about, the economists worry about, is that if there's an inefficient separation, if an employer is working for, uh, uh, for a firm and then is, is let go, uh that uh, over the time that they're like, oh and they're not working they're losing uh, they're losing skills and they're losing uh, you know uh, uh, valuable connections uh, with, with with the employer. The other thing is I very much uh, just looking at the um, ways that uh, decisions have been made in this crisis, I'm skeptical about Congress's willingness to actually let those programs expire. And I worry that they won't let them expire and that that, that we will still be seeing the incentive impacts because of that.
0: Um, Josh, again, we're worried about the physical effects of the COVID-19 and all the spending that's been going on. It's been quite a bit of spending going on. Uh, Are there any plans out there to look for pay-fors or ways of financing the kind of uh, money that is needed to satisfy the criteria that you identified earlier in the program?
1: So early on in the discussions about the individual checks, there, was a, uh, there had been a discussion about the idea that the checks might be something that would be a loan that would be paid back out of uh, tax, next year's uh, tax returns. And uh, that, that idea died pretty quickly. And I think it died pretty quickly because we don't really know when this crisis is gonna end. It seems kind of harsh to say, here's a check and you have to pay it back in a year um and people might not be in a good position to pay it back in a year so i think for good reason um that 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 uh didn't happen um but there's also been a general uh reluctance to think about the kinds of measures that i was speaking about before where there would be longer term pay-fors for example uh in the in the ui regime ui is an insurance system if we think that there wasn't enough ui in place and states weren't well enough prepared we could have given them some additional support for ui now but then ask them to uh, contribute more to their UI programs in the future and actually fund those so that it doesn't get put on the on the federal government. Um, one uh, other example of a, of a pay for uh, that I've proposed in a new uh, white paper that I put out yesterday um, is the idea that for the next round, I, I think there will be calls on Congress to do more checks um, for the next round. If what we're really about is not trying to stimulate the you know Keynesian economic stimulus uh if what we're really about is uh is not just uh uh, handouts or giving households money but if what we're really about is helping households deal with liquidity problems helping them pay their bills uh helping them not fall behind on on their payments that um we should consider long-term pay-fors and uh and my white paper is an example of one particular long-term payroll that uh we hope might be long-term pay for that we hope uh might be considered which is the idea that for the next round, Congress could offer people the the option, so it would be voluntary of taking a check, say an amount of $5,000. And if you take the check, then you will have to pay that amount back, but not for a long time. And the way that you pay it back over a long period of time is that when you first claim Social Security, when you turn, right now it's around 66 years and two months, but it'll be going up to 67. When you first claim Social Security, you'll actually have to delay your, 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 your first claimed paycheck for long enough to be able to pay the loan back. Uh, and we find that in most cases, we would expect that people would be able to pay the 5,000 back even with a little bit of government interest, interest at a very, very low government interest rate um, within a matter of just a couple months. So you know, two months is a pretty typical amount of time. So essentially, you're agreeing that you're going to retire from your career two months later in exchange for taking liquidity now. Um, so that's a, that's one idea out
0: there. Interesting. Michael has a fascinating question, Josh. I don't know whether you have enough data to answer it. He says, as you examine what other countries have done in the face of the pandemic, are there any that stand out in your mind has seeming to have gotten it right with respect to physical considerations?
1: Yeah, well, I think on the, also going back to the unemployment insurance, you know, um, uh, there are countries that, uh, do much more than we do of, of what's called work sharing um so germany is one example they, they call it "Kurzarbeit" in germany so work sharing so work sharing is a is kind of like a partial unemployment insurance and it, it says that if your employer uh, uh wants to reduce your hours and there's usually some specif- pre-specified amount by which they can reduce it that you can you can claim ui you can claim unemployment insurance um for that uh, that reduction in hours and then it can be ramped up against so the, the reason that i think that's a good approach is that it 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 limits the extent to which you just have that detachment of the worker from the uh from the job and uh and now we have that to some extent here in the in the u.s because there are 29 states uh, unemployment insurance is a state program there are 29 states that uh do some form of work sharing as part of their ui program um but i think that uh if we had wanted to really shore up ui and, and to make it targeted towards this particular uh, problem uh that that type of fiscal approach would have uh would have, would have been good interesting
0: our colleague Annalise anderson asked a question about the current debate is about moving from these large-scale social social distancing policies to something a bit more limited involves screening testing quarantining etc uh, i know you're not a medical professional but do you have any thoughts about the economic trade-offs associated with that and then we have other questions that Folding into that, ask about what will be the fiscal requirements of the federal government as we work out of this situation into getting back to a normal or a new normal type situation.
1: Okay. So, you know, as I mentioned, I think that the, um, uh, we have to recognize the fact that, that the shutdown of the economy does have very significant impacts. And it's not about money versus lives. It's about lives versus lives. And so, uh, you know, uh, when when we are uh, literally telling all of our, you know, all of our students, again, we're isolating everybody, you know, and we're severely disrupting their education and social development for something that we don't even really know, you know, how well it's going to work. It's a very untargeted. I think we're, we're imposing very, very large economic costs. Obviously, major parts of the economy are completely shut down, and, and it may not be possible for some of them to... To return the near term, but it is very important uh, that we think about the the social, not only the you know financial cost, but the, the you know the, the, the social cost and the real cost on people's lives of uh, of continuing along the path um, that we have. You asked about you know what what about the fiscal situation when we return to normal? Well, you know we we've, we've just spent uh, you know two and a half trillion dollars if you you add up cares and the phase two uh and uh we've done so in ways that i fear are not very targeted and i think that we had a problem with deficits before this uh i don't believe that you can continue to just run deficits indefinitely without any consequences history shows that eventually what happens is that the bond market vigilantes show up and don't want to roll over your debt and particularly to the extent that we're dependent on Foreign buyers from other countries to buy our debt—that's uh, problematic. Can go on for a while, but eventually, uh, there's no such thing as this time is different. Eventually, uh, we end up having to uh, uh, to pay the price. So I think we're by by having spent so much on the initial response, I fear that we've weakened a bit our ability uh, to continue to provide you know to, to to provide support on the other end of this which would be the recovery. And, 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 I, and I have to say, I think you know, the, the recovery is one, people sometimes talk about a V-shaped recovery that we're just gonna go completely back to, to, to normal. Um, I don't think that's gonna be possible. I think that there are some industries that are probably, um, you know, for long-term disrupted as a, as, as a result of this. Um, that, uh, you know, the disruption uh, to, you know, say the hospitality business, we've now gotten comfortable with doing a lot of things such as these excellent, uh, Hoover briefings uh, over over Zoom technology, uh, type technology, and, uh, and 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 so I think that there's just going to be much less in the way of of of, uh, of travel uh, going forward, and uh, we need to think about how quickly can the economy and can the job market reallocate towards other productive economic activities. I don't think the level of economic activity has to be permanently lower, but it is going to be in very different things uh, in some cases than we've had in the past.
0: Josh, you see any fundamental shift in, in the way the federal budget will be allocated in the future? I mean, if the, if we have to pay the piper ultimately and there are trade-offs, uh, what, how, where do you see spending going down on education or defense, and where do you see spending going up?
1: Well, I, first of all, I don't see much desire for fiscal discipline in the short term. So I think the first thing that's going to happen is that eventually uh, investors uh, will start to hold the federal government accountable and whether it will happen over another um, as the, uh, the result of another, uh, you know, debt limit dispute, um, or whether it will happen as the result of, uh, you know, a big piece of, of uh, uh, buyers from China of our debt going away and not being willing to roll over our, uh, roll over treasury bonds. Um, the time is eventually going to come when that's going to happen. Once that happens, what you what you, what you have happening is the interest payments then go up very sharply as a share of the uh, of the of the total budget, and um, you know it's it's anybody's it's anybody's guess what exactly is going to is is going to you know have to be cut in order to uh, in order to 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 make to make that happen, um, and you know if you look at uh, other countries that have eventually gone into fiscal uh, distress. Typically, there's just very large-scale cuts across a lot of different programs, and it's it's politically very ugly. We've been living beyond our our means for a very long time, and we'll have to figure out a way to live back uh, within them eventually. Got it.
0: Well, Josh, we've reached the end of our time. Any concluding comments you'd like to make? Uh,
1: I don't think so. I I guess, well, I'll say one thing, which is that uh, I think that, you know, while a lot of the government policy responses were well-intentioned, um, there, a lot of them also were passed in an environment where there was some panic. Uh, there was a desire to show that, that, that we we're doing large scale things, desire to show that the government uh, cares as the uh, uh, acronym of the, of the act goes. But that unfortunately, as a, as a side effect of that, we've done a lot of, of bailing out of investors uh, who in our capitalist system should be bearing more losses than they are and we've also missed opportunities to fix things in the future such as our unemployment insurance program or our unfunded pension liabilities of state and local governments by not being willing to to put strings on uh on the on the aid that, that, that we're providing perhaps out of a desire not to appear uh stingy but the fact is that we just the federal government cannot just continue to keep bailing out the private sector every time there is an unforeseen shock or a shock where people say well it was you know through no fault of their of, of their own uh, again going back to the policy goals sure you know help help individuals make sure that people can can pay their bills limit uh uh inefficient job separation limit mass bankruptcies of small and medium-sized enterprises for which financial distress is large you know stop uh uh stop financial you know the, the financial markets from collapsing but we can't just continue to be the backstop for every investor, for every risk that every private individual takes. That's, that's, that's having a very big toll uh, on the vibrancy of our, of our free market capitalist economy.
0: Got it. Josh, thanks very much for being with us today. We really appreciated your comments. Thank you, Tom. I wanna to remind everybody that our next Hoover virtual briefing will be Thursday, April 23rd at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern with HR McMaster. The title of our talk will be Geopolitical and Geoeconomic Implications of COVID-19. H.R. McMaster is a senior fellow at the Herb Hoover Institution. He was the 26th National Security Advisor to President Trump and served as a commissioned officer in the United States Army for 34 years before retiring as a lieutenant general in June of 2018. His latest book is entitled Battlegrounds, the Fight to Defend the Free World, and it will be out in September and is available for pre-order on Amazon now. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link that you signed in on today. And you will find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our Twitter, line, Twitter handle is at Hoover Thank you for joining us today, and I hope to see you again next time. Please stay safe and have fun. Bye-bye.